Hi, I'm Jared Fuller. Welcome to Scratching the Surface. Something strange is happening to the world's cities. If you go to basically any city, basically anywhere in the world, you might feel a little disoriented. You might feel disoriented not because it feels different or new or unfamiliar, but because it does feel so familiar. Cities around the world are strangely, slowly starting to look and feel the same. There's a sheen to them, a facade. They almost feel too perfect. Kyle Cheka, a former guest on the show, has called this airspace. Uh, Renee Bohr, a critic, curator, and activist, who is also my guest today, identifies this trend as part of what he calls the smooth turn. In his fascinating new book, Smooth City, Renee punctures the contemporary city's obsession with perfection and how this smoothness that many of us experience when we travel is actually a troubling veneer. It is a flattening. It is a way to hide the complexity and messiness that give cities life. This smoothness extends from the digital apps that allow us to meet dates and pick up cars to the facades on buildings and the surveillance systems that permeate our experiences. In this conversation, Renee and I talk about what the smooth city is, why it emerged, and the architect and designer's role in legitimizing this move. But Renee is not just a critic, he is also an activist and an organizer. And so we also talk about the ways that we can move away from this smoothness to what he calls the porous city. I first came across Renee's work years ago because of his involvement with failed architecture, the sort of subversive architectural criticism platform. And so we also talk about that and we talk about spaces for discourse. We talk about how criticism can lead to activism and the new organizational structure that they've set up to ensure that failed architecture can be an inclusive and ever-changing platform. Looking forward, we also talk about Loom, the collective that Renee helped start that is interested in cultural transformation that in many ways takes the critiques of the smooth city and attempts to engage with them head on. Renee is a great thinker and writer, but what I really like about his work, I think, is that he practices what he preaches. It never stops with criticism, but with action, which I think is something that we can all learn from and be inspired by. If you like this episode and what we do here at Scratching the Surface, I hope you consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon supporters get bonus interviews, full transcripts, an exclusive monthly newsletter, and so much more. You can head over to patreon.com slash surface podcast to sign up and get immediate access and help with the ongoing production of Scratching the Surface. Thank you for listening. And here's my conversation with Renee Bohr. What is the smooth city? The smooth city, as I see it, is um, an urban condition um, that is spreading in cities around the world and is 
really changing what a city is. Uh, and I think it, I understand it as a landmark shift in urban urban history. Like cities used to be sites of um, conflict, friction, uh, but also of emancipation, of uh, shaping democracy together. And I feel cities are becoming more signs of consumption. They're all becoming the same. Uh, they're becoming these kind of smooth, slick, neat, cleaned, controlled, policed kind of environments um, where everything is in a tip-top perfect condition. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's a and I think that's a problem. <laughs> I mean, so the smooth city is a critique of this specific phenomenon. You mentioned. Um, I want to. I want to talk about why you think this is new, or the the sort of emergence of this idea of the smooth city. And you talk about in the book that ideas of control, ideas of power, ideas of order is not new in cities. You talk about sort of how Roman, you know, Roman cities. Yes. Yeah. What makes the smooth city something new or what can you talk a little bit more about sort of this change or this emergence of this new idea? Yeah, so um I think I mean many of these uh forces that are making a city more controlled or more smooth um have been in existence for a very long time. And so the book also has like a long uh, historical background <laughs> of different kind of yeah. examples of yeah. you know from the housemanization of Paris, creating these large boulevards to control the city, to the entire idea of um, yeah, modernist ideals around um, starting from scratch in a city to have to create a completely controlled environment. So it contains all these historical examples. Um, but I think we have been looking at some kind of perfect storm over, let's say, mm -hmm. more or less the last three decades, which have really, yeah, um, created this this overdrive of, of smoothness um, in a very short time span. And I think, uh, I mean, talking from the city of Amsterdam, where I'm sitting right now, I think it's especially the last 10 to 15 years, this has become in particular quite extreme. And you, you frame this in the book. You talk about this idea of the smooth city in a larger context that you call the smooth turn, uh, hmm. which you, you sort of, I, I found this part, this part very fascinating to me because I think we can think about the smooth turn, actually, I think that's something everyone's sort of uh, subconsciously aware of, that our, you yeah. know, our technology, our devices, these sort of smaller scale uh, interactions have become frictionless, the rise of digital tech, the rise of big data, you know, sort of surveillance, capital, all of this stuff to make us use devices more. You sort of say that this, the smooth city is a part of that larger trend. Can you talk about this smooth turn generally and how you see, you know, the smoothness of using an iPhone scale up to yeah. the smoothness of a city? Because I found that, uh, to me, when you talked about that, that's when this whole idea really clicked for me. And, you know, that's yeah. me coming from a graphic designer. Uh, uh, but can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, definitely. And so when I was talking about this perfect storm uh, that has emerged, let's say, over the last or happened over the last, let's say, three decades, it is, I think, to start mostly when it happens in cities. Uh, it's, I mean, the rise of neoliberal urbanism and understanding mm -hmm. the urban as a commodity. And then it's also, let's say, the a renewed popularity of the city that everybody wants to live in the city again. I mean, this is also a new thing, right? For a long time, people were uh, right. rather, like if you had the money, you would rather leave the city uh, in many cities or countries around right. the world. And I think right. now it's the other way around. So, but then indeed the smooth turn, I think I really see it as 
the third element of this perfect storm. And indeed, I think to a very large part, it has to do with uh, the rapid digitalization of our societies, of our life. Um, and, and indeed, like with everybody having a smartphone um, with them, that also means, I mean, that this has radically reshaped also how we navigate the city, for example, rather than having your own mental map and trying to find your way, uh, but just follow the, the, the path that an algorithm has created for us for the city or it has also enabled um the the rise of convenience culture for example the right, fact that right. i mean you hit one button and there is like a cab coming and it's going to bring you somewhere rather that you have to negotiate with somebody like where to go explain where it is negotiate a fare i mean this is all a thing of the past right so um and i mean and there's yeah there's really a lot to say about this this smooth turn is in so many aspects of of our lives right i mean Think about dating, for example, rather than um, yeah, right. navigating all the complexity of finding a partner in the messiness of uh, of this of the city. Uh, you now, from the comfort of your of your home, you can just select the perfect partner, make sure that uh, you're on the same page before you're meeting for the first time. I mean, um, yeah. So all of these elements are really changing the way many aspects of our lives work in the city. Um, yeah. There are so many examples <laughs> I can't <laughs> yeah. give. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that those sort of two examples are really interesting to talk about sort of the experience and the technology of being in the smooth city. The fact that you can, you know, be on an app and find somebody to go out with the fact that you can, you know, stand somewhere and very, you know, easily have a cab show up and take you somewhere, or you can have food. Yeah delivered to you. Um, You also talk a little bit in the book, and I'm I'm wondering if you could sort of extrapolate on this and connect these a little bit that, you know, the experience has been smoothed, but also the aesthetics of the city has been smoothed. Nothing is out of place. You sort of talk about this in relation to questions of gentrification and, you know, sort of real estate and privatization. How does the smoothness of the experience uh, manifests itself in the actual building and construction and aesthetics of the city. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think these are two two sides. In, in mm-hmm. indeed, like um, you nowadays have like a full overview of all aspects of the city before you go anywhere. You can see on on street view exactly how, how some, what some what a place looks like. Um, you have uh, like a lot of control on how you move around, uh, how much time it will take. So. Uh, indeed, this experience has be- has become very smooth. Um, but at the same time, I also feel with um, the urban becoming increasingly a commodity. And uh, this is, for example, in Amsterdam, very strong. I mean, like, for example, housing in Amsterdam um, used to be, uh, let's say, in public hands, uh, up to 85% of it used to be in public hands until like two decades ago. Um, and nowadays, a lot of it is be, uh, sold off and, and put on the mm-hmm. market and commodified. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also means that a lot of people uh, are now becoming private uh, property owners. I mean, I think this is a bit of a difference from with the US, I guess. Um, but it also means that people have the responsibility to maintain it, but also um, need to make sure it's in perfect condition to make sure it keeps its market value, right? right. So um, everybody is making sure that it, it's it's in in like a, a perfect condition that uh, to make sure that the rental prices can be optimized. If you're if the building that you own also has like 
um, commercial space that it, you can like make sure that you get the, the highest price for it. So there is this incentive to make sure that everything is like in a really good condition. And also there's an incentive for you to make to push the municipality or other authorities to make sure that the urban environment is in a super good condition. So you want to make sure that it's being policed, that there, are, there is like CCTV camera to make sure that everything is being cleaned uh, a lot. So these are all like kind of uh, yeah, forces that uh, really help. I mean, in the case of Amsterdam, but I think you can really extrapolate yeah. this to other cities to uh, to push this kind of uh, of smoothness. Um, and that really resonates. So I think, yes, it resonates also with this kind of digitalization and a smooth experience of the city. I f really feel that there is many different kind of developments happening at the same time. Um, which each of them like uh, make the city a little bit more smooth, but all of them happening at the same time are again this perfect storm of like perfection, order, and smoothness happening at the same time. We're sort of talking. I want to come back um, to some of the things you said in that that answer uh, in a mm -hmm. second, but but I think you know we're we're sort of talking around your critique of the smooth city and i would love to hear you just talk very directly about why you think this is <laughs> this yeah. is a problem i mean because i could you know i agree with you obviously you know I, I i am very much on board but if i was just hearing this i'd be yeah. like well this is, isn't this nice like you yeah, know yeah, it's yeah. nice i could get my cab anytime and i can get food delivered totally. to me and i can find something yeah. um why why do you find this problematic can you sort of just extrapolate on that and and sort of lay out your critique of the smooth city yeah sure and i mean i think there is an like we immediately have to talk about the paradox that i see in the smooth city i mean mm. we all want a city that is like clean enough safe enough um, that functions well enough to, to, to lead the lives that we want to live. Right? I mean, that is really important. And uh, I think many cities have also come from like very problematic conditions and the fact that they have like smoothened a little bit and mm. became more livable for more people. I really don't want to take that away. Right. So right, uh, right. I think that is a really important thing to say, but at the same time, I think that in many cities, Amsterdam being, uh, one example, this smoothification has gone way too far and indeed is very problematic for, for many reasons. And I think what it does, and that is really the most problematic, is that it flattens the complexity of right. the city into like this singular smooth layer, this one this one dimensional kind of environment and eliminates all the depth of of urbanity, the depth of diversity, the depth of complexity, the depth of spontaneity into this like one layer in that sense i think it's very uh, anti-urban somehow the smooth city reduces the level of urbanity yeah. it reduces diversity it stop encounters across difference right it's homogenous city uh you only encounter like replications of yourself in like the right you only see yourself right. mirrored in like this the smooth services of the city right so and then it also stops the pro like process of becoming so rather than uh you uh, ha can experience a certain growth and become something else. Uh, you 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 become uh, part of this one smooth world, right? So I think that is like this critique of the fact that it becomes less urban. I think it's uh, yeah, very, it's a start, but there's also other problems with it. I can expand on if you want. Yeah, I mean, and I think I, yeah. I, I think you know the interesting thing there, to me at least, is that it it is 
only smooth to a particular type of person also, or only a particular type of person has access to the smoothness. And so you're on the side. I talked with uh, Kyle Chaco was on the show. Ah, I know know you referenced his work in in the book, Um, but he and I were talking about his book on minimalism and Mm -hmm. how, you know, in a way that connects to, to these ideas when you're on the app, you know, finding, you know, getting a cab, the that infrastructure <laughs> that yeah. gets that cab to you it, you don't see that anymore and that's kind of what the smooth city is doing also it is covering over the complexity that actually makes the city work in some way right yeah yeah in, in many different ways so uh, i know in many cities a lot of people also cannot afford to hit the uber button right. and move around right. like that right so these people are uh, left to other forms of mobility that are less smooth they're waiting for public transport or uh, I don't know, waiting for somebody to bring them somewhere if they have time. Um, but also, like, um, making this car, uh, I mean, the, the, the mm-hmm. lithium in the electric battery of this car uh, is sourced in a mine far away uh, in, under, in conditions that are definitely less, less smooth than that smooth city in which the Uber car is driving, <laughs> right? Right. Um, so it, it goes in many different ways. So, like, maintaining the ultimate smoothness of a few, like, of, of the main cities in the world uh, really comes with uh, an unsmooth dark side that is being like hidden in the smooth city. I, I you write a lot about your experience in in Amsterdam, and I could not mm-hmm. help but read the book without thinking about my time in New York, and specifically mm-hmm. towards the end of my time in New York when Hudson Yards um, yeah. was being built and opened mm-hmm. and. You know, that to me felt like a sort of prime, Hudson Yards felt like a sort of prime example of the smooth city and that it was a private space that was sort of masquerading as a public space. There was surveillance, yeah. there was sort of all of this um, sort of embedded technology to collect data to make sure that it's maintained the perfection of the smooth city. But the other piece of Hudson Yards that I thought was interesting, and you touch on this a little bit in the book, is this idea of uh like the city as experience, the city as um, you, you talk a little bit about Disneyfication of cities mm-hmm. and, and Michael Sorkin's variations on a theme park. And I'm yeah. wondering how that relates to this. And I, I, I'm thinking specifically, again, of like Hudson Yards and the vessel at Hudson Yards. But you see this move in cities around the world where the city gets flattened to become an experience through which you can share something on social media. You know, the city becomes a thing that becomes a background for you to take a picture in front of in some ways, yeah. opposed to actually being in the city. Is that connected to the smooth city? And if so, can you talk about that relationship where the city just becomes the theme park, the place you go yeah. to take the pictures to then project back out? Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I think, um, so there's many different ways in which the smooth city can occur. So it, it can become this very controlled and silenced kind of environment in which nothing is supposed to happen. But there's also this element of festivalization, right? So to um, yeah, create this theme park kind of atmosphere, like in the entire city, or maybe only like I don't know, a few days or weeks uh, a year, uh, in which yeah, you're supposed to consume and really participate in this kind of festive atmosphere. I think, but what it connects is that there is this kind of homogenous hegemonic kind of um, urban culture if you wish in which you kind of have to uh, participate it almost becomes this kind of 
social imperative, right? It's kind of unescapable. If you are in the environment of Hudson York, I mean, I haven't been in New York in eight years. I have not seen <laughs> yeah, the I'm new sorry. That's a very there. specific reference. <laughs> yeah, but I, I mean, I've heard, I, I, I read a lot about it. Um, yeah. But I can, what I imagine it to be is that it's also kind of this environment, this homogenous environment that you cannot really escape, right? So it's, mm-hmm. it is indeed this smooth city in the sense that it's this one flattened kind of environment. Right. Uh, that functions as a social imperative. So you have to mirror uh, kind of what is happening there, right? Mirror its perfection, mirror its kind of festivalization. There is not like a diversity of layers to which you can connect, whether it's, I don't know, consumption or doing something yourself, adding something yourself, undermining it, celebrating it. So this diversity right. of different roles is is lacking. So it's, it is one script you have to participate in. Which is in this case, I don't know, celebrate and take a uh, take a selfie. I guess. <laughs> right, right, uh-huh. right. C- can you talk a little bit about the the role of design and architecture, or the designer and the architect in the smooth city? Because what struck me in reading the book is that the smooth city is not, you know, ca- caused necessarily by architects and designers but they do help solidify these ideas they do help you know actualize these ideas um how does how does the actual built environment the design of spaces help smooth the city in these problematic ways yeah definitely so i think historically uh design has been uh, about uh creating order uh, whether it's graphic design mm-hmm. or architecture, it's like ordering visual elements or spatial elements. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that sense, it helps when it's when architects or graphic designers or visual designers or spatial designers are active in the city, they help in ordering the city in that sense, also making it more ordered uh, in that mm-hmm. sense, also more smooth, right? Um, especially if architects, for example, work for um, real estate companies, uh, right. they help shaping uh, their their business and uh, materializing the spreadsheet that is on the real estate's uh, business <laughs> right. company, they they make sure that this spreadsheet actually materializes uh, in real life in 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 the city, right? So I think often uh, architects and designers, uh, or maybe graphic designers, creating I don't know uh, fancy logos for new for new stores, yeah. or interior yeah. designers creating um, new fancy interior spaces that really make a part of the city or a specific shop look new and 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 slick and neat um, i think they all are kind of collaborate in or um, re- creating and also reproducing the, the smooth city but at the same time i also don't want to completely dismiss uh, the profession <laughs> or the field right, that i'm right. also part of that you are part of in a way uh, so um, so I critique it, uh, how many architects and designers are, are complicit, but th- I definitely also see uh, ways out of it. I think there is a way that architects and, and designers can also uh, think about disordering uh, the city um, in all its spatial and visual elements. So th- there are possibilities there. So can we let's talk about those possibilities a little bit, because I, yeah. you know, when I was reading the book, The Smooth City was you know, became a sort of hyper object <laughs> to me where I like couldn't, you mm-hmm. know, I couldn't see my way out of it. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, a little, a little doom, uh, doom and gloom in the book. Yeah. But you do, you do provide alternatives. You do sort of look at and explore 
ways to get out of this. And you contrast the smooth city with something that you're calling, you call the sort of the porous city, or you sort of build upon this theory of, of uh, porous cities. You talk about ideas of queering the city. How yeah. does is a, a porous city or what does it mean to queer the city how does that start to counter so yeah. many of these dominant forces that we're seeing around the world yeah so i also got a bit sad with like the, the doom <laughs> scenario of the smooth yeah. city and indeed seeing it everywhere I, yeah. I also don't by the way I, I don't think that the smooth city exists in its uh in its fullest in one place i think everywhere where you go there is parts that are smooth or less mm, smooth right mm, so if you yeah, go in an actual right. urban environment you will see like hey this is some i mean this is this is going towards some kind of smooth horizon but the full smooth city in its extreme doesn't exist i think that is also like a that would be a full dystopia indeed right um right. but you often feel it's going that way right um but indeed, so I was also thinking, so yeah, being conf confronting myself with this doom scenario or also seeing this doom scenario emerging in, in cities that I visit uh, or that I research. And um, I also started to think like, yeah, so what do we want then, right? What is the alternative? Um, mm -hmm. And I, going back to this paradox I was talking about, I don't think it is desirable to, to work towards the unsmooth city, right? I, I don't want to advocate for cities that are dangerous, uh, uh, dirty uh, or unsafe or I don't know are not working at all or like right. just one big mess I think that is not something that should be an ambition of anyone right so but so if the unsmooth is not uh, the, the the thing that we should desire what is it what we should mm. work towards that we should desire and and I think this notion of uh, porosity and I'm not the first one to 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 look at the city from this notion of porosity. Many, many people have been talking about this, Walter Benjamin, Richard Sennett. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's a very interesting, also like physically an interesting opposite to the notion of smoothness. Smoothness being like a smooth surface being this kind of closed off, clean, hermetic, uh, reflective, reflecting kind of surface. Mm -hmm. And a porous surface, something that actually has uh, a more rough kind of service that has a certain mm. ways to enter the material to to go in it or go out it and so if you for example would see the city as a sponge like i mean a typical kind of porous mm -hmm. material this would be something that all kinds of entities can flow in it change the material qualities of the larger structure but also leave it and come and go uh, and i think that would be a very interesting kind of yeah, opposite uh, to to smoothness rather than the unsmooth, I would say. Um, so yeah, the 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 porous the porous city as a as something to be desired beyond the the smooth city as it emerges today. This might be a an interesting point to sort of transition to your work more generally uh, you yeah. know, you're, you're not just critiquing this you're not just sort of tackling this as a writer or a critic but you you are sort of thinking through these problems and and uh organizing and you know sort of thinking through solutions and i, I want to hear more about uh loom which is a um I'm not, I was going to say studio, but I'm not really sure if that's the appropriate word. For yeah. it. it's, it's, it's a thing that you launched last year that you call a practice for cultural transformation. Exactly. Can, yeah. can you talk more about Loom and the, the goals for Loom and what you're trying to do there? Yeah, yeah, totally. So uh, Loom is, um, is a collective, we can call mm -hmm. it a practice, a group, a a studio office i mean it, we're not really <laughs> sure ourselves we're i mean it's it's a convergence of five people uh 
that are somehow also similar to uh, work in a similar way as, my, as myself. Um, we're all uh, professionals working in similar domains. So let's say architecture, the arts, heritage, design. Uh, we're not architects or designers. So in that sense, we don't come up with specific solutions. Uh, so we're also not interested, I, I think, in specific design or planning or policy proposals, mm. but more to, yeah, I would say to facilitate a process in which different individuals or groups or communities or thinkers, artists, designers can come together uh, in which some kind of mental shift occurs on how we understand the way we want to live together in, in mm. cities or, or in general. Uh, so in that sense, we're not like specific designers. We're more, let's say, instigators of new ways of thinking about the city <laughs> and hoping yeah. that something get, comes out of it in real life also. So what does that, I mean, that, like that sounds really nice in theory. Yeah, yeah. What does in that theory, actually look yeah. like in practice? What does, what is the output yeah. of Loom? How does that manifest itself? So we're still figuring it out. I mean, <laughs> we're, uh, we started <laughs> last year and it's, uh, but maybe to, to give you a try to try to give you a bit of a concrete example. So where we, where we're situated in Amsterdam and in Rotterdam, that's a part of the world um which you already know that it will not be possible to keep this part of the world dry on the long term mm. right so uh most of the city uh, which i'm looking at right now from my window is at below sea level uh, and it's currently kept dry um, mm. with the help of all kinds of technologies um and we probably probably can keep it dry in the foreseeable future but not in the long term and i think the mm. first signs of of that are already manifesting itself so for example um, there, are, there were plans to build a certain neighborhood not very far from Amsterdam. Insurance companies said, no, we're, we're actually not insuring this anymore uh, because it was like five meters below sea level. Um, and so it is clear that the insurance companies understood that like, that actually might be a problem to keep that dry, right? Uh, right. So the water, is, the water is coming from the sea, the excessive rainfall um, through the rivers from the mountains. So this is going to be a very wet part of the world. Um, and so we started to, to think around this notion of what we call wetness, living with wetness. And in the Netherlands, historically, there were a lot of modernist ideas about separating water and land and making sure that we can live on dry land surrounded mm -hmm. by water. Um, but we're, yeah, we're, I think we're uh, approaching a time in which that would be inc increasingly difficult. So we need to think about how we're going to live with these kind of wet conditions. And I don't, I mean, there's a lot of architects and designers, I mean, also, especially also engineers thinking about how to solve this issue. And there's architects coming with all kinds of new proposals. But I think we are interested in trying to create a process in which we can come to terms with the situation. I mean, uh, and, and also um, try to find ways how to, yeah, how, how can we collectively deal with the situation and find ways to live with it. Um, and so we're trying to, to create all kinds of projects uh, that help trying to understand how we can do this. And I mean, to yeah. just give you one example is where we've been doing a series of wetness walks. Uh, and we started with a group of students walking around in the landscape um, uh, around Amsterdam, uh, trying to understand where wetness is manifesting itself. Uh, and trying mm -hmm. to get a, a, with architect students is like, how do we deal with this notion of wetness and how can we incorporate it into our future practices in a way that we can, I don't know, maybe prolong uh, our time in this part of the world. So, I mean, just to give you one example of like kind of yeah. the larger issues we try to tie to local situations uh, without becoming solutionist, I would say. Right. Yeah. It's so, uh, it's so interesting. And, you know, what I'm sort of, I, 
I first came to your work through failed architecture, yeah. which, I wanna, which I wanna talk about in a second, but I have one other mm -hmm. question before that, that sort of connects Loom perhaps, connects the smooth city and then you know maybe transitions that into to failed architecture. Yeah. Uh, but you, you mentioned when you were talking about Loom and this collective that you're not solutionist, that you're not architects and designers. How yeah. did you how did you get into all of this space? Um, yeah, can, can you talk a little bit about your own background and, and sort of where you're coming from in approaching these issues yeah. and critiquing? These yeah, issues? definitely. I mean, I think a lot of it is rooted in uh, me growing up in in Amsterdam uh, and at quite a young age. I became involved in in Amsterdam's more let's say alternative communities, especially the the squatting movement in in, mm. in Amsterdam. Uh, and the squatting movement in Amsterdam has a very long history. It still exists today um, and over time has been very active in creating all kinds of, let's say, alternative urbanisms right. from queer spaces, free zones, networks of refugee housing. And for me, this is, has really been my real life school in thinking about space uh, and architecture. And so, and at the same time, as I, I remained involved in these kind of communities, I know its thinkings and ways of working and methodologies. I also developed a professional practice at the same time, but over time, that became more, I don't know, one world of thinking about space and, uh, and the city and, and acting on it. Um, and especially like seeing these alternative urbanisms being eliminated with everything being cleaned out, policed, controlled. That, I think that was really what led me to think about um, this, no yeah, this uh, notion of smoothness being emerging in cities and starting to dominate uh, cities in many ways. Um, yeah. So I think that was a, that has been an important start in uh, thinking about space in general and smoothness later in in particular. Yeah, and so so you you were and are still one of the sort of driving forces behind failed architecture, which is a sort of architecture criticism writing discourse yeah. organizing platform that started in 2010. I had yeah. Mark on the show years ago, yeah. and we talked a lot about. Uh, failed architecture, but I want to talk a, a little bit about with you and a little bit about how it's evolved and connected to yeah. some of these larger questions that we're talking about today. Um, how did you get involved with, you know, the, 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 you know, how did, can you talk a little bit about your origins with failed architecture and the initial goals for the site and how you have seen that evolve over the last, I guess, you know, 13 years now? Yeah. So, yeah, after ex experiencing uh, the way Amsterdam was changing. And at the same time, I started to study urban studies uh, mm. in London and the UK. Um, and coming back to Amsterdam, I really wanted, I mean, I think very similar to you, actually, also wanted to, everything I learned about cities and design and space, I really wanted to reflect about that um, in a critical yeah. way, yep. uh, rather than immediately diving into, I don't know, like a design practice or yeah. uh, in a planning practice, for example. So that's what brought me to connect with field architecture, which actually just emerged, I think, like two months before I, I, okay. I actually wrote to Mark at the time, and then I uh, became part of it. Um, and field architecture started as this small collective in Amsterdam, um, yeah, at the same time, trying to research these so-called failures. Uh, and we were especially interested in, are these spaces uh, actually failures? Maybe there's actually people living there who actually enjoyed mm -hmm. living there, or maybe these were not failures at all, but very successful uh, places of city for certain people, right? And at the same time, we also try to invert 
kind of these, um, let's say, the positivism in architecture. Like right. everything is being branded as a success. So like when you build a shiny new building, that is progress and success. And maybe that's the actual failure. So that's we also wanted to invert it in many different ways. So I think that's what we did for a really uh, long time through writing, <laughs> later through podcasts. Um, and we used to be like a small collective of uh, mostly guys, to be honest, in mm -hmm. uh, central Amsterdam. Um, and I think what we've tried to do over the last few years is also hand it over to a new generation uh, and also make sure this will be way more diverse in terms of professional backgrounds, geographical backgrounds, everything. So it became from a small collective that is was physically rooted in one place in more this kind of international network that it is now. Uh, and it's also a new generation. So we're also like slowly stepping our way out, so to say. It's it's interesting to to actually sort of hear that origin in the context of this conversation because in mm -hmm. a way failed architecture. Tell me if this is stretching the metaphor. Mm. Right? Yeah, yeah sure. in a way, yeah. failed architecture was sort of critiquing the smoothness of architecture media. In some way, it was it was sort of yeah, puncturing totally. that sort of you know yeah. uh, render culture sort of praise for new construction and you all yeah. were kind of trying to subvert that in some ways yeah definitely yeah but yeah totally I th and I th yeah, you're totally right and i think um we did it in in, in many different ways like holding up this mirror to yeah. let's say dominant architecture culture right and um yeah and trying to undermine that in in different yeah. ways and also try to create like i don't know a crowd a network of people who think uh, things should be done differently and, and and definitely also this thinking about smoothness also definitely is is rooted in our thinking at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and but I think you know like this, uh, if one new building that is being proposed that is new and fancy is one thing, but if it's mostly fancy new buildings being built and all the old buildings are being renovated to a perfect condition, that is when this like. Right. Uh, hegemonic sense right. of smoothness kind of emerges and maybe that's also like uh, it takes it one step further in a sense that uh, you see these kind of smooth zones emerging in certain certain cities um, so but I mean yeah you're totally right I think this this kind of critiquing this smooth city is, is completely rooted also in many of the ideas developed in yeah. architecture over the years yeah I watched a talk that you gave recently about failed architecture and, and you were sort of talking about your own sort of changing feelings about the role of writing and the role of criticism. And you, you were talking a little bit about how you see failed architecture in its early years, really focused on sort of criticism. There was a sort of ironic bent to it. And mm, yeah. that over the years, it has evolved to really take a position to be a part of larger movements. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that specifically with failed architecture, but also generally, could you, I'm very interested in this idea of the, the overlap between criticism and activism or criticism and organizing. How do those all sort of fit together for you, but then also how can we sort of think about criticism as a type of activism or a type of organizing? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, maybe we can say also that, like, I think, yeah, to be honest, many of the issues that we're dealing with, uh, that we're dealing with at the time, um, were not affecting the people mm. working for field architecture necessarily so yeah, much. Yeah. Um, and I think that has also changed with the new network that is currently dealing with uh, or like running field architecture. Yeah. Um, 
and yeah i mean i also feel that like this kind of ironic take on things was maybe also part of the kind of sign of the times yeah <laughs> the i was time. gonna say that's very like 2010 so, yeah, yeah. yeah um and um but i think at the same time many of us were also uh were like combining our work with field architecture with more activist movements uh, and i also feel that this is more going it's more let's say overflowing into each other so I also feel that, for example, I mean, that's that's not happening yet, but I also feel that maybe field architecture could become more of an, an activist movement in itself, right? Uh, and so, I mean, I would find that very interesting, like, for example, if that, I mean, we did that already in the past, I mean, maybe to give you one example. So um, the field architecture office used to be in the red light district uh, in Amsterdam. So we know a lot of the different communities living and working in, in the red light district. And there's currently, uh, there are plans to remove all the sex workers and put them in one building outside of the city. Uh, very classic example of displacement, uh, of marginalizing, stigmatizing a certain community. And for example, uh, together with 130 sex workers and different other organizations in the neighborhood, support organizations and field architecture, we wrote this letter, um, not directed at the municipality or the authorities, but at architects, designers and building companies to say like, hey, make sure uh, we call on you not to participate um, in the construction of this so-called erotic center that they're going to build. So, um, and this is very interesting. I know this letter has been circulating uh, within the architecture community. I know people are kind of like now, let's say, well, uh, scared in a way to get involved or burn their hands on this kind of situation. So in that, in, I mean, I think this is just one very I mean, locally important, but on a global scale, um, minor example um, of how I think field architecture can also become a more kind of, yeah, has a more activist stance. So uh, rather than looking at like all the interesting aspects of modernist architecture as we used to do in its early days, I think this can be, a, a yeah, um, we, we take more of a position within some of these struggles, for example, around space. I think that could be an interesting right. future for field architecture. But at the same time, I also feel that a new generation has to take this over. You, you hinted at, you know, that you, you've turned over a lot of field architecture to this new generation. You hinted at a sort of change in structure. And so in December 2021, I think you mm -hmm. sort of announced um, a new format structure model for failed architecture. Where you have these rotating organizers. It's distributed around the world. Can you talk about that structure and how yeah. that came about and sort of how that's worked over the last, uh, you know, almost two years now? Yeah. Yeah. So... Uh, we used to have a more like classic, um, let's say, editorial structure with the editor-in-chief, managing editor, <laughs> contributing editors, etc. And I think also this notion of like when we brought a lot of new people on board, we also gave it a lot of thought, like how to organize this. And we wanted to do this in a more horizontal manner, um, mm -hmm. in a, hori in a uh, horizontal manner. Um, and uh and through all the conversations that we had, we came up with this uh, yeah, specific model with like uh, organizers, which is, of course, like a more activist way of organizing certain organizations um, and have these organizers run it and also like uh, rotate these, these organizers every uh, three to six months. It's currently six months. Um, and also to make sure that different voices from across the network uh, can take the lead in yeah, in, in shaping the direction that uh, that field architecture is taking. Um, and that has been uh, going pretty well. Um, 
what what was diff- I mean, what was interesting is that like when we had a lot of new people signing up to become part of field architecture around that time, what we really were looking at is to make sure that like I mean, we had like a closely collaborating team in real life in Amsterdam, and I think this real life mm. collaboration has been really important. And so what we're looking at is to find people like in New York City, in Bogota, in Beirut that could like work together in that specific environment. And so everybody started on March first, twenty twenty. Um, a few days uh, before the pandemic erupted, right. uh, I mean, almost everywhere. Um, so the idea to like work together in real life immediately then became uh, this kind of dispersed Zoom life that everybody has uh, right. been submitted to. But so this and so this really never really took off very well to have these like real life collaborating teams. Um, so I think that was kind of a pity. So that has been quite a challenge, I would say. Um, but yeah, the, the network is still, uh, thriving and yeah, coming up with new ideas. So I think that's, yeah, that's really cool. Uh, yeah. It's, it's such a fascinating model to me. And, and I was really excited to see you try it and to hear that it's working. And I'm wondering, this yeah. is a, this is a big question. Um, but you know, I'm, I think a lot about publishing and media and spaces for design critique and, you know, that model economically to make sure people are paid fairly and you know people can yeah. participate is it, it just mm-hmm. is is hard and i'm wondering if a model like this if you see this as um something that could be used elsewhere you know is it is yeah. it something that that is sustainable for new types of publishing formats yeah yeah i guess so i, I mean field architecture is being i mean financed through uh people have been like donating right small uh, sums of money uh, on a monthly basis um, which has allowed us to to pay um, mm. like our contributors small small fees um, and but I think what is what is interesting what it, what field architecture also uh, allowed uh, me and mark and others from let's say the earlier generations is like to, to build our own practice around field architecture as an intellectual motor so field architecture was like mostly voluntary for us uh, we put a lot of voluntary time in it. Um, but because we were working in it, we were also asked to uh, to teach, to consult, to to write. So, it, like, it really um, helped us shape our own practices uh, and also create a practice that is financially sustainable um, on the long term. And uh, it is interesting. For example, if you now look at the New York the New York team of Field Arctic, you see that many of them already. Uh, have a job, uh, full-time job to 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 survive in the city and field architecture is more an on-the-side thing. And I think many of the people who work uh, on field architecture in in Europe, for example, have more this kind of um, yeah diverse, multifocal practice of which field architecture is a part. So um, yeah, so I think that's these are different models. But it, so that's on a personal level. But like as a platform, I think it's yeah, I think we're very very grateful to the many people who have been like. Just paying small amounts now and then to feel like to make sure that we can also, yeah, yeah. keep running, right? So I think yeah. that is uh, that is really fantastic. What's next for you? Uh, what are you thinking about now? You know, you just have this big book that that came out earlier yeah. this year. You you know, your sounds like uh, Loom is a focus. But what are the things yeah. on your mind? What's what are you sort of looking ahead towards right now? Yeah, so first it's going to be uh, touring around with the book and promoting nice, it a bit nice. more, I guess. So that's the first thing. Uh, I'm also very curious or interested in like further thinking this notion of, of the poorest city. 
and making and like to think like how can we materialize this poor city is there a way how we can can create this uh how can we involve architects and designers in creating the poorest city and and not how can we just create it in a brief moment but how can we also sustain it on the long term so querying querying the smooth city to create porosity but then commoning this form of porosity on the long term to make sure that we can sustain it i think that is something i would be interested in like testing that in the actual urban environment um so and yeah loom is a big thing and i'm also another thing i'm working on is um a big research on um dutch multinationals um who are working on land reclamations around the world um, in a way that is often very harmful to the environment and local communities. Uh, and in many cases, this has been going on for multiple centuries. So it's also a colonial history. So that is something um, I've been already working on uh, for a while, also together with a few people from field architecture. So maybe that's another thing I would like to flesh out, but also a lot of parts of loom so that's uh yeah give that yeah. yeah give that more space yeah yeah that sounds great my last question which is the question yeah. i use to end all of these i'm curious what you're mm -hmm. reading right now uh what i'm uh, reading right now um yeah, yeah many things actually um <laughs> that doesn't surprise but, me actually yeah, the, yeah. The, the range of references in smooth city by the way the, yeah. the the sort of diversity of thinkers you pulled from was was really amazing so i'm not surprised you're reading a lot right now yeah yeah, yeah. It's, there's different things on my on my on my table but uh, uh maybe one interesting thing uh to mention is uh against ageism uh by simon von sarlos uh a Dutch philosopher uh, who is now living in the U.S. mostly, um, and they are also, uh, and that's also something that we share with Loom. Um, they are thinking a lot about this notion of time troubling, uh, mm. and how can we, like, huh. in these in these troubling times, how can we trouble time? Uh, mm. And I think that is a, and they are really more doing that from a perspective of age and how age and time relate. Uh, but I also think, yeah, this really inspired me. And also other people within Loom to think about how we can um, yeah, trouble time maybe within the city, like let's say the, the temporalities wow. of the city. How can these be troubled? Maybe that resonates also with porosity. So I don't know. That was something I was thinking about this morning. So. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Wow. That's interesting. I feel yeah. like we could have a whole other conversation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> just a future about, conversation. Yeah. yeah. Just about that. Um, well, you say, you know, you say on the Loom website, one of your core values is that once we've made an effort to get to know each other well, we hope to stay in conversation. And yeah. I really enjoyed this conversation and hope we can continue uh, this conversation in different ways. Renee, I, I loved the book. I loved this conversation. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much. And that was my conversation with Renee Bohr. It was recorded on August 25th, 2023. Our theme music is by a friend of the show, Jeremiah Chu. This show is made possible because of Patreon supporters. So if you like what we're doing, I hope you consider supporting us and get bonus content each month. You can follow us across social media at Surface Podcast. You can listen to all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening. <laughs>